You are listening to Cornelia Church. Passion for God, compassion for people. Merry Christmas to everybody. Turn to your neighbor, turn to somebody you haven't greeted this morning and wish them a Merry Christmas. Go ahead and do that. Take a second there. Just say it until you're sick. Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas. Thank you, sir. We are going to have uh, Christmas Eve services outside, as uh, Candace just said, and we're not going to have service uh, in, it'll be only online on the 26th, and we planned that uh, over a year ago, uh, probably we normally set our calendar in October, so about a year ago, after really doing our Christmas Eve service last year, I just loved it so much uh, outside. Um, which it was special. Anybody, how many of you were there last year? It was just such a special, special moment uh, that I thought we, we, we've got to do this again outside. So if you don't like that we're doing outside, send me the nasty letter because it's nobody else's, you know, thing. It's it's something that I really just thought was wonderful. Um, and uh, and then so you know we planned these two things, and then of course uh, the governor did the the new mask mandate about indoor masking. And I just thought, man, I was really in the spirit of God when I, when I scheduled that outside and we're not having services. That's basically half the services during the next month. Uh, of course, it'd probably be extended after that, so that's a whole other thing. Um, so Christmas Eve is always a special time and a special service. It's a time for many that's traditional where you'll come with your families and people will attend that don't normally attend. And I was talking with uh, one of my mentors uh, last week about Christmas Eve service, and he, and he just encouraged me. He said, Andrew, uh, go for the gospel and go for souls on Christmas Eve because there's something that is special that happens uh, as we gather together with our families and when people's hearts are open and they're sensitive in a way, sensitized to the Spirit in a way that many times they're not during uh, other parts of the year. And it's a special time when people are together with family. They're coming because of tradition. They're coming because mom says, no tamales for you if you don't come to service tonight for whatever reason, right? They're t there. And so it's just, it's a wonderful time when people can be surprised uh, and actually encounter Jesus. Uh, and, and more than getting together and lighting candles, and I love fire and I love lighting candles, and it's one of, that's the reason it's one of my favorite services of the year. More fire is always better for me when it comes to Christmas Eve. Uh, as much as those things are nice, the greatest thing is that the Lord would visit us and that people would come to a knowledge of Him. Uh, and, and so I just want to invite you just in, in this moment just to bow your head and to pray with me for that specific purpose for friends and for family, for those that are away from the Lord, those that have wandered away from the Lord, those that don't know him, that he would visit us on Christmas Eve. And so, Lord, we do. We just come before you right now, and we're asking you for an open heaven. We're asking you for a visitation. We're thinking right now specifically of Christmas Eve service, uh, but, but not just that. All, really, we want this in every service that, that we have together. We're just asking, Lord, that you would visit uh, us in, in, a, in a way that people would come to know you. That, Lord, even those that are coming just because it's tradition, they're not expecting anything, they, they don't believe in you, they might even think that, you know, you're not even real. Lord, we're asking that you would surprise them. We're asking that there would be a touch 
on that service, on every word that is spoken, every song that is sung, the very environment would be palpable with the Spirit of God. And Lord, you would draw people to you. You would draw people to salvation. You would draw people to your grace. We pray, Lord, for those that are, are there that have walked away from you, uh, that, that maybe decided in their heart a long time ago that they didn't want to have anything to do with you anymore. Lord, that they would just in that moment, once again, be drawn back into your arms, be drawn back into your kingdom, that their first love would come back to life in them. Lord, we pray for those, Lord, that, that are lost and that are hurting, that'll be there on the 26th, that you would find them, Lord, and you would surprise them with your goodness. And we pray this in your precious name. And everybody said, amen, amen, amen. amen. Hey, and if you are, uh, it will be cold. We anticipate that. Uh, so bring a blanket, uh, bundle up, bring a jacket, whatever you need to do. We will have heaters going in the tent and kind of reserve that space uh, for our oldest and for our youngest who really need those warm spaces. So everybody else bring, you know, bring what you need to bring to stay warm or just freeze. That's up to you. It's okay if, if you do that too. Uh, but if for those of uh, that are watching online or that are here that won't be able to be with us for whatever reason, uh, we will be streaming that. Uh, we'll be streaming that live at, at 4.30 so that you can be a part of that as well because we are certainly a family together. I want to talk to you for the next few minutes, uh, a Christmas message. I want to talk to you about the Kings of Christmas. And this morning I noticed as we got up and I drove in and I think it's still out there, we have a white Christmas this morning, right? It's not maybe not on the ground, but it's in the air. Uh, the kind of Christmas that we have around here, it just doesn't seem right unless it's foggy on Christmas, at least in my recollection. Uh, and so we do have a white Christmas this morning. And I want to talk to you about uh, the Kings of Christmas today. And I want to uh, open up the word with you to Matthew chapter 2. So if you brought your Bible, you can open that up. If you've got your device, you can open up version of Matthew chapter 2. Our notes for today uh, are going to be in version as they always are. And it's a very simple message, a very sim simple set of notes, but I think it'll be valuable uh, for you. And we're going to begin in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1. Uh, and it simply says this. It says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, every gospel narrative, we have four gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And every gospel account, each one of them is an account of the life of Jesus. Each one has a different perspective because they're written, number one, by different authors, but secondly, they're written to slightly different audiences. All of them tell the story of Jesus. All of them talked about who Jesus is uh, and his nature and his ministry. All of them are incredibly powerful and valuable and add to one another, but each one really is written with a specific intention in mind and communicating something very specific about the nature of Jesus. In the Gospel of Matthew, what Matthew is concerned about is he's concerned about something that's very important to his audience. His audience are Jewish people. Uh, and the Jewish people in that day have a history, of course, of an expectation of a coming Messiah. For thousands of years of Jewish history from the time that Matthew is writing all the way back to Abraham, there have been prophecies of a Messiah who would come, who would reign on the throne of Israel, who would make things right for the Jewish people, who would bring and save the people from their sins, and he would rule from a throne on Jerusalem. That expectation of the Messiah is just part of being a Jewish person in that day is that expectation that one day God would make things right and he would send them a king. 
So Matthew is writing to a group of people who have a history of, and an understanding of who the Messiah is, and he is actually describing to them systematically through his entire book, telling them that the Messiah has come, that the Messiah is king, and that king is Jesus. Uh, and he does that over and over and over again. In, uh, I think it's Matthew chapter 8, the famous encounter when Jesus is on the boat with the disciples in the middle of the storm. Remember that? Jesus falls asleep. It's, it's stormy. The disciples are afraid. They're so freaked out. Jesus is sleeping in the back. They think they're going to die. The winds and the waves are so intense. They finally wake up Jesus. Jesus looks around and he says, well, what are you guys afraid of? And he speaks to the wind and he speaks to the wave, waves and he says, peace be still. And suddenly it becomes calm. Now, I love using that, and I think it's appropriate to use that story uh, about how Jesus has the authority to speak to the winds and waves in our life and our circumstances in our heart, right? That is totally valid. But what Matthew is really saying there is that Jesus is Lord over all of creation. Who has authority to speak to the wind and the waves and to tell them to shut up? except for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the creator of the universe, right? And so, so every account really that Matthew gives throughout his gospel is about underlining that Jesus is King, he's the Messiah, he's the one that has come and that he has rightful, uh, he has the right to the throne of Israel. He truly is the King of the Jews, the King of Israel. And so uh, in Matthew chapter one, the very way that he begins his gospel, just a chapter earlier from what we just read, is he begins with the genealogy of Jesus. That is, he's telling the history of Jesus. Uh, and it's a list of names. This person married this person, and they gave birth to this person. And it just gives name after name after name. And many times we read that, and we go, wow, what's the deal with that? And it traces Jesus's bloodline all the way back to King David and earlier. And basically it establishing that Jesus has royal blood and that he has a right to the throne of the king of the Jews. Okay, so it's, it's all about bloodlines. It's very important where you come from if you're going to talk and establish the right to the throne. My, my kids and I and my wife a couple of years ago went to England and we visited the Tower of London. Some of you might have visited the Tower of London. It's really, it's a pretty fantastic place, uh, an amazing castle. And you go through and they tell you the history of all the people that got their heads chopped off. And it's just, just glorious, just wonderful. But one of the things about the Tower of London is it, that is the place where they, uh, they, they house and protect the crown jewels of England. Okay. And, and so I thought, I told the kids, this would be cool. Let's go in. Let's see the crown jewels of England. We're here. So we go in. And if you go in, the very first display that you see is a big poster uh, with, you know, a description of the history of the crown jewels. And it says something like, these are not the actual crown, the original crown jewels of England. Be because the original crown jewels of England in the year, whatever, 15 something or other, were destroyed by Oliver Cromwell. Okay. Well, if you don't know me, my name is, is Cromwell, Andrew Cromwell. Okay. And, uh, and, and so I, I looked over at the kids and I said, well, hey kids, uh, that's your ancestor right there, right? That's why we don't have the actual jewels, uh, the crown jewels. Uh, we, we have the second crown jewels. Uh, and, and the truth is, is that supposedly, supposedly, we're, we're related to Oliver Cromwell. Someone in our family has traced it back all the way to his brother, actually not to him, but you know, anyway. We would, in fact, be something if it were not for the fact that uh, Oliver Cromwell was put to death and they brought the monarchy back and all of that kind of stuff, we actually, the Cromwell family, we might actually be the kings and queens of England, but we're not, we're not, right? So, 
our bloodline is not in line, uh, right, for the, for the crown, for the, for the throne of England, because I'm related to the wrong people. If you want to establish, uh, if you want to establish that you belong in the throne and on the throne, you have to establish your bloodline. And that's what Matthew does, and he traces Jesus's blood all the way back and says he's royal in every which way you can imagine he belongs on the throne. And then in chapter 2, then Matthew continues, and he lists out in this verse 1 three kings, and he begins, I think, to contrast a story about the kinds of kings that we have on the earth versus the real king. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning just for the next few minutes. I want to talk to you about the kings of Christmas. And in that verse that we just read, you see three kings. You see King Jesus, you see King Herod, and you see the Magi, the kings of the East. And I'm just going to quickly uh, make some observations about each one of those and, uh, and make some applications to our life and, and, and then let you go for, for, your Christmas, for your Christmas season. So the very first thing I want to talk to you about are the joyous kings. And so if you're taking notes this morning, uh, I want you to write out number one, the joyous kings. If you're not taking notes this morning, what's the matter with you? Uh, you know, I'm gonna get with the program. I want you to take notes, right? When you take notes, it makes me feel good. It makes me feel like you're listening. It makes me feel like you care about me. If you don't care about me, then you're not taking notes this morning. I know that you hate me if you don't take notes because clearly you don't, you know, so, so anyway, so there's, there's pieces of paper in the seats in front of you. I want you to take notes and write them down. You're gonna take them home. You're gonna put them on your mirror. You're gonna think about it. You're gonna memorize everything that I said, and you're not gonna forget the moment that you leave here, what we talked about today. Okay, that's, that's why I want you to take notes this morning. Write down, number one, the joyous kings the joyous kings. You'll see in just a moment why I refer to the kings of the east as the joyous kings. Let me pick up the account, the account that most of us are familiar with. I'm going to read a, a number of verses uh, that follow. And it says, the, uh, the wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Now, the, these wise men who came from the east, they have made a trip of probably about a thousand miles. Uh, they came from Persia, and they're actually part of a group that is referred to as the Magi. They were the, the really the kind of the scientists of the day, and it's a school of uh, very educated and learned uh, men who were invested in things like interpreting dreams and looking at the signs and studying the stars uh, to understand what was going on in the day. And they had looked at what was going on in the heavens, and they perceived that something supernaturally powerful was happening in the heavens, that what was going on in the heavens, that the way that the stars were being aligned was something that was worth noting, and it indicated that there was going to be a king that was born of the Jews. And if you're going to go find the king of the Jews, you're, and because really, remember, if you're looking into the sky and you're seeing that something insignificant is happening on the earth, it doesn't actually tell you what city it's happening in, right? It just tells you that the age is upon us, that something significant is happening. They look at the sky, they see the signs, they see something's going on, and they know that if there's going to be a king of the Jews, they would expect to find him in the capital of the Jewish people, which is in Jerusalem. So that's why they go to Jerusalem and they speak to Herod, who is named at that point the king of the Jews. He had been given that title by the Roman Senate. And they say to him, where is this king that we know is coming? 
and that is going to be born. Uh, and Herod, of course, starts to get nervous. We'll talk a little bit more about Herod's response. And they, uh, they don't know where this, this king is supposed to be born. So Herod calls in the chief priests, he calls in the scribes, he calls in the wise men uh, in his court, and he asks them, hey, is there a prophecy in Scripture? They go to the Torah, they go to, to, the, to the Old Testament, what we know is the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, and they say, is there a prophecy in the Old Testament that tells us where the king of the Jews, where the Messiah is going to be born? And lo and behold, in Micah chapter 5, it says right there that he's going to be born, the scepter is going to come out of Bethlehem, the city of Bethlehem. And so this is what they, they discover. They tell the kings from the east, it's Bethlehem, and the kings from the east then are heading out to Bethlehem. Of course, Herod says, hey, when you find him, let me know, come back, give me the news so I can also worship him. He's got another plan, we know. Uh, and so they head out. Verse nine, after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Now, this is interesting because they see a star or they, what's described as a star that is the reason that they come to Jerusalem to begin with, which is clearly something that happens in the heavens. But then it's almost like they see another star because now it says the star moves before them and stops in a certain place over a certain house. Well, stars in the sky don't move and stand over houses, right? right. I, I mean, there's, there's something like, wait, so we got to understand exactly what's going on. Now, we, we know, it seems, if for, from those that have studied this, uh, the, uh, the way that the stars work, of course, in the sky is uh, systematic, it's cyclical, and it's traceable. And so whenever you're looking at the biblical history or any just history in the world and something has happened in the sky, you can actually just look back and almost like turn back the pages in a book and you can calculate where things in the, where the stars would have been, where the planets would have been in the past, uh, because we know that they work in an orderly manner. And so people who have studied this have gone back and they have found that in BC, the year BC 6, six years before Christ, uh, that there was a convergence of planets and stars and all this. There was a lot of things that were happening all at once that probably was the indicator that the Magi or the kings from the east saw in the sky and they knew something is happening. This is the moment uh, there's going to be a king that is born. Uh, and, uh, and so then they head out on this journey from Persia, which is a thousand miles away, on a journey that takes them six to nine months, anywhere from six to nine months, to get from their, uh, their starting point, which is when they see the star, to this point where we see them now. So that all happens in the heavens, and then it talks about a star that's rising and moving and stopping, and, and, and that doesn't go along with what they see in the sky, but it must be another kind of star, so we're not really sure. It's probably an angel, could be an angel that's leading them at that, in that moment, that is presenting a light to them that then they see, that then goes and stops over the place where Jesus is at that moment. And we note here uh, in, in verse 10, it says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. Note, it doesn't say they saw the infant or they saw the baby. It says they saw the child. Uh, so they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. 
They see the, the, the sign in the heavens. They leave Persia at that moment because they had studied and understood the times. They understood what was going on. And they journey for six or nine months. So if when the signs happen, Jesus is born, and it takes them six or nine months to get there, then Jesus is no longer an infant when they get there. I mean, he's a baby, but he's more like a toddler than he is a newborn when they arrive. Therefore, when you have your nativity scene at your house with all your pretty little things of Jesus and the manger and the whatever's on the nativity scene, the angel and, and the camels and the, and the pigs and the goats and all that stuff, and then there's three wise men, well, they're not there, guys. And like in real life, they don't actually appear at the birth of Jesus until probably six or nine months later. So all those of you that have nativity scenes, throw those wise men away. <laughs> and as a matter of fact, it's, we don't actually know that it's three wise men. We don't know it's three magi because the scripture doesn't say it's three magi. We think it's three magi because they bring gifts of frankincense, gold, and myrrh, but there's, it doesn't actually ever say in there there's three. There, some, some traditions say there's 12. It could have been two. Could have been, I, we don't actually know how many there were. So, I, you know, I mean, so you got a real problem if you have a nativity scene. I mean, half the people that were there weren't even there, right? So just forget it. Just forget it. Just get rid of the nativity scene entirely. No, no, I'm, that's fine. The whole principle, I think nativity scenes are wonderful. We have them in our house, but the whole principle, of course, is that they are coming to worship the Lord, but just know, historically speaking, they're not there in that moment, and they arrive uh, at this place and where the house is, and they are so excited when they see Jesus. They, they, it actually, I love the way that it describes the level of their excitement. It says that when they, when they, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. It wasn't just a little bit. It wasn't just like, oh, we found him. Isn't it neat? It was, there, this was exceedingly great joy. It was overabundance. This is why I'm calling them the joyous kings. I just would say, when's the last time that you experienced exceedingly great joy? Uh, I, I think probably every time the, the Raiders get lucky and actually win a game, I experience, I experience exceedingly great joy, right? Not only because it's so rare, but it's just almost like a miracle. The Lord is working if they win a game, okay? Exceedingly great joy. Now, exceedingly great joy is a wonderful experience. When you have exceedingly great joy, it, it, it's almost like you can't contain yourself. Right? If, you've ever, if you've ever had the, uh, the experience of, of something so wonderful happens that you, I mean, it's like you jump up and down. You, sometimes you start to sing because you can't not sing. I mean, just almost like it comes out of you, this expression of joy that can't be contained in yourself. Now, they imagine, here comes the kings from the east, and they arrive at the place that they've been journeying to for months and months and months, and they realize they're standing in front of the one who is going to save the world from their sins, the one that all of history is surrounded, the greatest person in the universe, they're in front of them. In that moment, he's in front of them, and they are just filled with an over, up overflowing amount of joy. It's just they cannot contain it. They're so excited. And it actually says they throw themselves down before him. They don't just say, oh, this is wonderful, give each other high fives, we finally did it. They actually throw themselves, it says they fell down before him. It's almost like a violent reaction, the level of understanding of whose presence they're in, and they end up on the ground, on their faces before baby Jesus, before young Jesus, because they have recognized who they're in front of. My question for us this morning is, when's the last time you really expressed exceedingly great joy at who Jesus is and at what he has done for us. 
If you have experienced exceedingly great joy, you can't contain yourself. You, you, you got to move your feet. You got you to lift your voice. You got to clap your hands. You, you, you got to do something physically with yourself. Sometimes you, you, you got to throw yourself down and before his presence because you recognize that the greatest one in all of history has actually turned his face towards you and considered you and opened up the door to heaven for you and made a way for you where there was no way. And he's transferred you from the kingdom of darkness into the light. He's given you a hope and he's given a, you a future and he's going to change everything. He's now written your name in the book of life in heaven. He's going to give you a white stone with your name written on the name that only he's that's that's what Jesus has done and so that should actually create inside of us it should create inside of us a sense of joy and I just think that sometimes we're a little too reserved I think that sometimes we're a little too concerned about what other people think uh, about, you know, well, I'm going to embarrass myself if I sing too loud because I can't sing, or I don't know if I want to move my feet because I can't dance. I don't know if I want to clap because, I, you know, I mean, I just, I can't clap in rhythm. And, I, you know, we think of all the things that we don't want other people to think about us, and it keeps us from actually expressing the very thing that we need to express and that we must express. And if we don't express it, then the scripture says it's the rocks that are going to express it for us because we're not doing our job. And, and I would just say to us, during the season and in all seasons, if we know Jesus Christ, then we have got to get to ourselves into a place where we experience a level of exceedingly great joy. And so I would just say, man, it's time to let loose just a little bit, people. Right? It, it's, it's time in our times of worship, in our times with your family, in our times when we're talking with other people about, about what Christ has done, maybe we just need to unlock the door just a little bit so people actually understand the level of appreciation, the level of worship, the level of deep praise that we're carrying inside ourselves. And if we don't have that level, then we better do some business, right? Because we're talking about someone who in fact opened heaven for us and invites all of the earth into that same relationship with him. And, and when I read about the level of excitement that the kings had, it makes me think, well, man, may, maybe I need to up my level just a little bit up my understanding just a little bit. I like that whole thing of them throwing themselves down before Jesus. You know, because I think when we bow before someone, it is a physical expression. It puts our body in a place of humility that demonstrates that the other person, the person that we're bowing to, is actually more important than we are. I don't know if you've ever gotten on your knees and asked for an apology before. Some of you may have done that. I've done that before. When, when you recognize that what you've done is, is at the level where I, I really need this person to understand that I have truly messed up and that I need to humble myself at a level where I'm going to actually get my body on the ground and put my knees on the ground, put my face on the ground and say, would you please forgive me? Because in that moment, what we're saying is that this person in front of me, your forgiveness is so important to me. Your understanding is so important to me that I'm willing to, to lower my body. I'm willing to put myself in a place of humility so that you would understand that. And these kings who are kings, who, who, who are royalty themselves, they recognize the person that they're in front of and they throw themselves on the ground. Every once in a while, you need to put yourself on the ground, guys. When you're worshiping the Lord, sometimes you need to put yourself on the ground. You need to put your face in the ground. Uh, and, and every once in a while I'll do that. I'll do it even here sometimes. And I'll actually get on this carpet that you have stepped on with your dirty feet. And, and I will stick my nose in the carpet. And I will smell the dirt of the ground. And I will think of all the people that have walked on this thing. 
and I will remind, and, and, and in that moment, I don't want to be there, but I remind myself the reason I am there is because I worship the one who's worthy of everything and who took me, who created me from the dust of the ground, right? And I am nothing more than dust except for the fact that he has decided that he's going to love me no matter what, right? And everything that I've done and everything that I'm going to do, nothing is worthy of anything except for me just putting my face in the ground and saying, God, you're worthy of everything because of who you are and what you've done. And so sometimes, you know, you just got to, you got to do that with yourself, You've got to remind yourself that my purpose is worship, that my purpose is actually to tell God, to tell Jesus, the creator of the universe, the sustainer of the universe, the savior of all mankind, that he is actually worthy of praise. And if it's hard to get on the ground, good. Right? As I get older, it's get a little harder to get on the ground. It's even even harder to get back up. You know, my knees pop and my hips pop and my back, you know, which wouldn't do my, you know. I t sometimes that's okay. That's okay because it is, uh, again, a reminder and expression that, Jesus, you're worth it. Yes. And if, if my heart doesn't feel it, I'm going to tell my body what to, how to feel, Amen. right? And, and oftentimes I'll tell my body what to do, and then my heart will follow. Yes. Sometimes we come into a service, and I don't feel like singing. I mean, I know you guys all feel like singing. You're all holier than me. But so, sometimes we'll come into church. I don't feel like singing. I don't feel like clapping. I don't feel like raising my hands. And every single time it seems like Alfred gets up here, oh, you know, he says, sing, clap, raise your hands. The worship leader says, do something with your body. And then I have a choice. And the choice is whether I'm going to be obedient in worshiping the King of Kings or I'm just going to stick with my stinking attitude. And, and when I make the choice to do things with my mouth, to do things with my hand, to do things with my body, that put my body into alignment with worshiping the one who's the creator of the universe, something then changes in my heart that wasn't changing before. And all those things that were resistant, all those things that were out of alignment suddenly come into alignment because I've made a choice that my body, that the way I feel is not going to be in control. I'm in control of me. And I'm going to tell this thing to worship the living God. Right? And so be like the kings this season. Make a decision that your life is not going to be limited by the people that are around you, that you're not going to keep silent about what God has done, that you're not going to be embarrassed to give him praise. You're not going to be embarrassed to talk about who God is. Why? Because he's worth it. He's worth it. Be like the joyous kings this season. Be willing to throw yourself down. Be willing to give your all to him. Be willing to be filled with exceedingly great joy because you have come into contact with the one who truly has made a way for you and for me. Now, the second king, and this is in your notes, you can write this down. The second king is the jealous king. We have the joyous kings, number one, and we have the jealous king. And the jealous king, of course, is King Herod. And King Herod is a real person in the scripture. This is not a made-up person. Uh, now, it, it's, it's confusing if you read the Gospels because, uh, and, and the Acts, there's, a, there's actually six different Herods that are mentioned throughout uh, the four Gospels and the, the book of Acts. And they're all related to one another, but they're not all the same person. So this person is kind of is like the first one. He's, he referred to himself, it's a title that he gave himself, as Herod the Great. The Roman Senate actually gave him the title 
of king of the Jews. He was a guy who was really interested in power. He was not a Jewish man himself. He came from another part of the country, uh, but he was one who could actually join political forces together. He knew how to play the political game. He knew how to do the things so that people would, would listen to him and he'd stay in control. And ultimately, the Roman authorities liked him because he was able to, to take control in that region, and that's why they gave him the title king of the Jews. And jealous, I mean, I mean Herod was quite uh, jealous and in control. He liked power. Uh, he was a guy that really held on to the power that he had, uh, and he liked to do what he did. He was actually an incredible builder. If you even go to the Holy Land today, you can see a number of things that are there today, to this day, 2,000 years later, that he built. One is the port of Caesarea, uh, which was a man-made port that didn't exist before. Uh, secondly was uh, Masada, which was, uh, it's a, was a tower uh, refuge spot that originally was kind of like a spa that he created, almost like a palace that he created. Then, then it became famous as a holdout uh, by some Jewish rebels about 70 years later. Uh, and then the third, which you all familiar with, is the Wailing Wall. Uh, the western wall of the temple because he actually did an expansion of the temple of the Jews because he wanted the Jews to like him. He wanted to stay in control that he actually expanded and built a retaining wall that expanded the temple mount essentially. And that western part, which we refer to as the Wailing Wall, it's the Wailing Wall because the Jews pray there because they no longer have access to the top of the temple mount because now there's a mosque that's there. And so they, they pray there and, and that's because Herod built that. It's, it's there. And so He's an incredible figure, but he's a figure that's incredibly insecure. And he's always trying to control things. And he killed a lot of people. He killed his, his, uh, his own kids. He, he actually was married more than once because, because he killed all his wives. He did say that there was one wife that he regretted killing. The other ones he didn't so much care about. That's the kind of guy he was, right? I mean, he just, he was in to power and he was in to authority and to holding on to whatever he could and, and controlling whatever he could. Verse 7, it says, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And it says then, of course, that's a lie. We know that his real plan was not that he would worship him. This guy is insecure. He's in control. He wants power. Boy, if anybody tries to have power, he's going to kill them. And so if there's a baby that some people are thinking is the king of the Jews, he's most definitely going to kill him. And then we know what he did, verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. What a guy. What a guy. What's our application here? Well, I just, I, I want you to see that here, this king that represents the worldly system, this king that represents kind of uh, the way that we would normally want to hold on to power and we normally would want to hold on to authority in our life, that for us, what he represents is insecurity and jealousy and control. And how Herod can, because he is so afraid of losing control, he cannot actually receive the king of the world. He can't receive the hope that Jesus has come to bring because he's so worried that he's going to lose a sense of power over those things that are around him. And my reminder to you and my reminder to myself as well is where are you so jealous or so desiring to be in control that it robs you of the ability to receive actually what Jesus wants to give you? 
And many times we, we get into a situation, uh, and it certainly happens during seasons like this, where we, we're going to get together with family and there's lots of details and there's people that are going to be there and there's going to be conversation. We try to control everything and we get into this thing that we try to arrange everything and put everything with our hands on it just so that it's controlled and it doesn't, nothing goes wrong. And, and, and so we get so obsessed with making sure things are arranged and aligned and controlled that we lose sight of the fact that there is actually joy and goodness that Jesus has come to bring in the season. And we spend so much time running around and trying to fix things and control things and manipulate things and deal with things and control people and what they're gonna say and what they're gonna do and everything else. Let me just say, give up. It's a lot better just to release. If you find yourself in that place where you found that you're so concerned about what's gonna happen in this season, you're so afraid of the conversations that are gonna happen, or you're so concerned that the kids aren't gonna be pleased with their gifts, or somebody's gonna do something or say something, or you know, some, that is, maybe it's time just to say, you know what, that fear comes from the author of fear, comes from the one who wants to bring fear and control into my life. I'm gonna reject that, I'm gonna let go of that. As a matter of fact, I'm gonna choose a different king. My king is not the king of fear. My king is not King Herod. My king is King Jesus. And he brings peace and he brings life and he brings hope and he brings joy. And so every time that I'm, I'm tempted to control or I'm tempted to try to force, or I'm tempted, I'm just gonna say, you know what, I'm gonna give that up. Sorry about the mic, guys. I'm gonna give that up, and I'm gonna just go ahead and allow God to do what he wants to do, which is to bring his peace and his life. And so where is jealousy and where is control robbing you of the gift of peace? The third king is this, and I'm gonna conclude with this, is the third king, of course, is Jesus, Jesus the king. The joyous kings who came to worship, the, the king who was jealous, and finally King Jesus, who is the savior of the world. Let me just read to you the, the great verses out of Luke chapter 2. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you this day in the city of David a Savior who is, is born, I'm sorry, in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was an, with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. The angels appear, and they make a declaration in the night sky, a declaration that changes really everything, a declaration that ushers in a new age. See, because today the age that we live in is an age when Jesus is seated on a throne of grace. It's an age when Jesus has come and he has opened heaven for everyone that would receive, for everyone that would reach out for a relationship with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He has said, you are welcome. I am here for you. I have chosen you first. You think you've chosen me. I've actually chosen you. And so now we live in an age and a time when heaven is open to us. And he says to each one of us, and he would say it to you today, peace. There is peace that's declared over you. 
that his peace is actually designed to surround you, to dwell in your house, to be a part of, of the, your daily experience of life. And many times and we walk through life and we don't experience his peace, we don't experience his joy, we don't, we, we're carrying all kinds of other things around, and it's because we've lost sight of the reality of what those angels declare, which is still true today, that today I don't have to worry, I don't have to be concerned, I don't have to carry fear, I don't have to carry anxiety, I don't have to worry about what's going on, about the future or the past. Why? Because the master of the universe has declared peace. And he says, peace be still. He says, peace to you. He says, peace to all mankind. And Jesus came, and I think it's so incredible that he came as a baby, which speaks of the humility that he was willing to accept, to actually receive. Philippians chapter 2 says that, that Jesus gave up all the rights of his deity, all of those, what we call those divine attributes, so that he could come and take on flesh, could become human like you and me, become dependent. As a baby, he was dependent. He had to be fed. He had to be changed. He had to be cared for. And he, was, he completely embraced humility. He completely became this little innocent infant so that he could completely become our king, completely identifying himself with us. And it says he was wrapped, he was, first of all, uh, born and laid in a manger. We think of a manger sometimes, you know, we've got that little pretty picture uh, of, you know, this little straw that's kind of holding his little cute head up. But the, the reality is, is that manger is nothing more than a feeding trough. It wasn't, wasn't something that was very kingly. Wasn't something was there was no announcement on, in the earth about the fact that he was here. It was in the heavens, and only shepherds saw it. Shepherds are kind of like fishermen; nobody believes them, right? They they tell about what they saw. And, oh, sure, yeah, I heard that story before, right? And they're the only ones that know. They get they get the news, and there is Jesus as they come and they see him, and he's wrapped. It says in swaddling clothes. Now it's an old word we don't really use anymore. And uh, it kind of sounds kind of kind of cool, swaddling clothes. It really just means strips of cloth. And these strips of cloth were carried whenever you were on a journey. That's probably why Mary had them with her was as, as they were journeying to Bethlehem from their city. And those strips of cloth, one of the things that they were used for was they were used to wrap dead bodies in. Uh, and the reason you always carried them on a journey is because in, in those days you never knew things people could die at any time. I mean, the death was all around you at any moment. And so you carried these strips of cloth because you had to wrap the body uh, to make sure that you as a Jewish person didn't touch a dead body because you're not supposed to touch, touch a dead body because it makes you unclean. And so they would bring these, these strips because they're easier to bring with them. And here is Jesus wrapped in the clothes, of gra in grave clothes essentially, in this manger because he literally is born to die for us. And all of the indications in the natural are of a little child who's weak, and who doesn't have the answers, but that's the way that God works. Yeah, he comes to us in weakness. He comes to us and presents us many times with uh, an answer that looks foolish to us, but it requires us to accept the fact that he came as a child to offer to us the answer. He came and he lived fully a, a life without sin so that we, even though he experienced all the temptations, so that we would have one that understood everything that we've gone through so that then ultimately he went to the cross to give himself so that we might know him forever. Today, I just want to remind you, the whole purpose of Christmas, the whole reason that we're here is that we would worship the King of Kings. 
and the Lord of Lords. And in this season, be like the joyous kings. Don't be like King Herod. Don't be like the jealous king. And choose always to carry that sense of worship wherever you go. Would you stand to your feet? Let me pray for you today. If you just bow your head, maybe you're here this morning and you don't know and don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. I don't mean that you don't know about Jesus Christ. I mean that you don't know Jesus Christ. You have not given yourself fully to the King of Kings and to the Lord of Lords. You might have been in a lot of services like this one before, or it might be your first time today. In the first service, there was a man who came in who had said he would never in church before, but he gave his heart to the Lord. And I just want to invite you, whatever your background is and whatever your story is, whatever you came in carrying today, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, it always starts right there. And it's a relationship that he offers to you and he offers to me. He picked us before we can pick him, but it, he, we are required to say yes to him. And if that's you today and you need to make that decision and you're ready to make Jesus the king of your life, then I just want to pray with you. Just, just raise your hand with me and we're going to pray together. Anyone here that needs to make that decision, raise your hand high so I can say that you're saying, I'm choosing you. Yes, I see that hand. I'm choosing you today. I see those hands. All right, let's just pray this together. Jesus, today I choose you because you first chose me. Lord, would you forgive me of my sins? Would you make me clean? And would you give me a new start? Would you be my king? In Jesus' name, amen, amen. It's a very simple thing. It's a very simple thing, a very simple prayer, but it changes everything. It's actually the beginning of a new relationship. There's actually a transfer that happened where now you're under different authority. So you're no longer under another king, you're under King Jesus. You're, you're no longer under the kingdom of darkness, you're in the kingdom of light and it's the beginning of a fresh start. If you made that decision today, we wanna to pray for you. I'm gonna invite the prayer teams to come down right now and we would want to pray for you. We wanna give you a gift and encourage you in that. Um, but before we do that, I'm just gonna ask everyone bow their head one more time. Maybe just raise your hands. Let me just pray for you this Christmas season. Just raise your hands in a, in, a, in a sign of receptivity. Lord, we thank you that you are here in the house today. And I thank you, Lord, for every person that's here and every person that's hearing my voice this morning. In the name of Jesus, I just declare over them a blessing. I thank you, Lord, that you have declared over every house peace, goodness, life, grace. And Lord, we're asking today, even as we raise our hands, we're asking today that you would visit our homes, that, that you would actually dwell in our homes, that in this season, Lord, there would be great peace, there'd be great joy. Lord, I know that there are often as many tensions as uh, family is home and people get together and relationships happen and life happens. I pray, Lord, that there would be a sense of forgiveness and goodness that there be a sense of grace, that there be room, Lord, for people uh, in our homes, that we would have an understanding and an ability to understand each other. I pray, God, that what would be on people's mouths would be goodness and encouragement and blessing, that you would give us words of life to speak to our kids and to our friends and to our family. Lord, I declare that this, this church, the Quantity Church, this Christmas season is going to experience your presence in a fresh way, in a new way, that as they reach out to you, Lord, that you'd be right there. I pray pray on Christmas morning or Christmas Eve and whenever they get together with their family, that there would be a sense that you are with them. Lord, there'd be something powerful in the atmosphere. I pray, Jesus, for great, great blessing and great peace to be on everyone's home. In Jesus' name, amen, 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 amen. 
Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed the message, and we hope to see you on a Sunday at 9 or 11 a.m. Visit us online at kchamford.com, and if you want to support our ministry, click Give. Cornelia Church, passion for God, compassion for people.